Hi, this is Michelle Weidenbenner, your Chief Hope Builder. I am the author of Mom's Letting Go Without Giving Up, Seven Steps to Self-Recovery. You can download that for free at momslettinggo.com. Welcome to the podcast that will help you feel at least 15% better. Feel free to join our Facebook private group, Mom's Letting Go, also, and surround yourself with other moms who understand your pain. If you would like to take your journey into a deeper accountability and recovery for yourself, join us at momslettinggo.teachable.com where we have a subscription membership. We have a tribe of moms who are all together in support groups and coaching and we study together and grow together and we are going to write a book together so that we can help other moms come into recovery with hope and determination and a way to find their own identity and recapture their purpose that they lose in the throes of dealing with an addicted loved one. If you find this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave us a review because that's how other moms will be able to find us too. God bless. Thank you for joining. This is Michelle Weidenbenner, your Chief Hope Builder. And today I'm going to be talking to you about forgiving an addicted loved one, even when they're still using. So, Moms oftentimes take so many things personally when their child is in the throes of addiction. We get blamed for a lot of things. Our children yell at us. We are the brunt of a lot of their anger um, throughout their addiction. Not always, but in many cases, I've seen this pattern, and it's really, really hard to forgive them. And sometimes moms don't even want to see their child anymore. Moms and dads, they disown them. They just walk away and say, I can't do anything. And I understand. I understand it's exhausting, and it's a, it just zaps all your energy to try to reason with somebody who is unreasonable, who has upside-down logic. So today I just want to talk about how do you forgive and how do you look at the person and not all these negative things that they are doing with their life, right? Well, first of all, um, you're not alone, and it's really hard. It's really hard. And if you're here, it's because you you want to heal. You want to figure this out. I know I did. Um, Our son and daughter-in-law went through opioids to heroin to meth, and they are 31 months now into recovery after years and years of substance use disorders. So I'm your hope builder. It can happen. They do get in recovery. So, but forgiveness and trust are two different things, right? We can forgive and still take time to trust somebody. 
those are two separate issues. Forgiveness is really more for us than it is the other person. Because when we're, when we're sitting in a place where we're obsessing over somebody else and what they've done to us or said to us, we, we can't stay healthy. We can't be healthy. We can't sleep. Sometimes those thoughts just keep ruminating in our mind over and over again. They just take over. And it's just so unhealthy. So first of all, I can tell you, don't take what your child has said to you personally. I can say that and you're like, Michelle, I get it, but how do I not take it personally? So today I'm going to share a few things that have really helped me along this journey. First of all, just know that they say and do things that they don't mean because inside their brain sits the enemy and the enemy is the person we have to oh we have to say be gone right because um once once addiction um is no longer or once using is no longer a choice and the brain tells it it's survival it's a disease and in that moment in in the disease of addiction sits the enemy and loves loves putting himself between us and our loved ones but our relationship with our loved one is so important because it's there that our loved ones can feel like somebody's there to help them heal and if they feel like they have no one it's it's just harder so just remember they aren't saying those things to you the enemy who took over their brain is saying those. Encourage them to look at their problem as a medical medical condition that needs treatment. And so often they are in denial because they are ashamed and they think, oh, I can stop any moment. I'm not like those people. I'm not like, you know, the alcoholic or the drug addict. Um, sitting in the alley. They might be highly functioning, right? But their use, you know, their substance use disorder is wreaking havoc on their life and their relationships. So once we can stop the stigma and think about it like this, if your son or daughter-in-law had cancer, you'd be looking at all the healthy options for their recovery. You'd be talking to other people in with similar diseases. You would be talking to the doctors. You would be getting second opinions. And you would be doing the work, right? Well, this disease should be no different. And if we look at the, the negative things they say to us as just like a symptom. So if they have cancer, you know, they can't sleep. That's a symptom. Um, They might not be um, able to eat. You know, that's a symptom. Well, a symptom for somebody who's addicted to drugs or alcohol is to steal for their next fix. It's to lie because they want, they don't want to feel ashamed of what they're doing. They don't want other people to know that. And so once we eliminate that shame and explain, you know, 
look, I'm here for you. I want you to heal. And I can see that you're having some difficulty with, you know, coping with what's going on in your life. So just keep those, keep those things in, in mind. And the next thing is to really study addiction. Read about it. Research. Once we research addiction and what happens to the brain, and we start understanding what's happening to our child, we look at it totally different. And we don't take it as personally because we realize that what they are experiencing is a symptom of the disease. It's not personal. It's not... Even if we feel guilty, like, goodness, we've all been there, like, oh my goodness, how could I let this happen to my child? Where did I miss what was going on? Could I have prevented this? Is it really my fault? I had divorced their father, or um, this was going on in their life when they were little. Did I miss this? Um, You know, all the guilt comes with it, and then when they when they want what they need, what they think they need, they know exactly how to get it. And so they will call us names. They will get angry with us because we'll say horrible things. And then guess what? We feel guilty. And then we give them what they want because we feel guilty. And it's this cycle, this role we play. And it just plays out over and over again. But when we study addiction and the roles people play, the symptoms, and when we compare it to cancer, um, we see it differently. And once your perspective changes, you it'll free you. It'll free you from feeling guilty. It'll free you from taking what they say to you personally. Um, and this like, this disease, like any other, needs to be treated by somebody professionally, by somebody who understands the disorder, who somebody who can work with your child, because typically there's an underlying mental health disorder that causes the problems in the first place. And so they they can't stop unless those underlying conditions are addressed, right? And if we look at the cycle of stigma, um, I have a diagram in front of me, and it really helps. And it's a big circle, and at the top is the word public stigma. And if you, if you're like me, before my son had this disorder, I, I just, I would say things like junkie, addict. Um, you know, I would just look down on people with this disease. And what what happens when we do that is it just keeps them locked in the shame of it. And they're not they're not open to getting help because they don't want to admit that they're like those people, right? Anyway, so at the top of my little circle is public stigma. And then there's arrows going to the right. Then comes discrimination, prejudice, fear. And the next item on the arrow is damage to self-esteem and hope. Treatment avoidance. So they they avoid treatment. Their self-esteem plummets. 
And then they have this self-stigma. So then they start thinking, oh my goodness, I am a worthless piece of crap, right? And then they have shame and the circle's going, you know, it's I'm halfway through the circle. I'm at the bottom. Then they have shame and self-doubt. The next step is reduced rates of recovery, drop out of treatment. They think, oh my gosh, I can't do it. Um, because once they realize how what a hold the enemy has on their brain, it's really, really hard to stop. And so they drop out of treatment. They um, just give up, right? And then the next step, they use substances to avoid or suppress the negative effects. So this, and then at the top again, we start with that stigma, the public stigma and people looking down at them and not being able to communicate or connect with them. And so this cycle is a circle and it just keeps going round and round and round. And it keeps our loved ones in this awful pattern. So that's why it's super important to understand what's happening so that we don't take what they say to us personally. So here's here's a few other things I want to share with you um, that really helped me, okay? It's important to have realistic expectations because oftentimes we think, oh, my son or daughter went into detox, they went into recovery for 30 days, they're good now. No, that's not typically how it works. Habits take time to break. And when when they're in this pattern, they have to learn new habits. And new habits just take a while to learn. And to actually <clears throat> stop the brain from needing or feeling like they have to use substances to survive it takes time. It takes a long time. And so I always think of it as like, you know how when our when your child was in preschool and then they went to kindergarten, elementary school, high school, and then college? Well, look at their recovery like that. If they've been in jail and they've just been abstaining from drugs, they haven't learned how to cope with um, recovery, in recovery. And when they get out, it's so depressing that they are triggered and they just think whatever, and then they start using again. So when they're in jail and somebody else is making all the decisions for them, they're still in preschool. They're still in kindergarten. When, they, when they're just detoxing for 30 days, they're still in kindergarten because they haven't learned how to um, cope, how to survive in the world. And then once they once they're given more and more responsibilities and they're treated more like adults, they start to grow and they're in elementary school and they start to learn and we give them, they become more independent. And we, we give them more choices and more things to be responsible for. And by high school, you know, they're enjoying their freedom, but they're not quite, they're not quite ready to work full time and have a house and have a family and all those things. Not yet. Um, and I'm not saying it takes 12 years. It might. Um, we don't know. And somebody says, well, how long does it take? 
as long as it takes. And each person is different. Um, But when you look at recovery in a realistic way, it helps you cope with their ups and downs and being talked to in, you know, in a respectful way. Once they start recovering, they go through, and, and not always, but if you look at the 12 steps of recovery in, from Alcoholics Anonymous, I want to just share a few of these steps. I'm not going to go through all of them, but most of our loved ones, when they go through recovery, they go through certain steps. And once they go through these steps, that's when we start seeing them being more respectful to us. And sometimes their sponsors will work with them on these steps over and over and over again. And it's just like, you know how you can learn something and you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. I get it. And then maybe a year later, you're like, oh, I get it even more now. Like sometimes, you know, awareness in their lives and what they're going through just takes time. And it's a development process. It doesn't always happen, you know, overnight. It won't happen overnight. So in the 12 steps, in step four, they make a searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves. And so they look at themselves and take a moral inventory. And they might be in a place where they accept, you know, this is who I am. It's not who I want to be. Or they might be like, I'm, I'm cool with who I am, right? But in steps eight and nine, things change. In step eight, they make a list of all the persons they've harmed. And they become willing to make amends to all of them. And when our son was in this step, this stage, um, in the first year of his recovery, or maybe the first six months, he would call home and um, he was living in a different state. And he would talk to my husband and I and apologize for certain things because it was it was making amends. He was making amends, um, trying to right the wrongs in his life. And he said, it's the hardest thing ever. It's looking in the mirror and, accept it and, and accepting all my faults. And then nine, they make direct amends to such people wherever possible, expect, except when, if they do it, it would injure them or others. Unfortunately, sometimes when they're in this spot, they want to go make amends with somebody, but it's possible that that person might be on their deathbed and not want to see the child. We don't know what the circumstances are, but as long as it's safe for the for those for those who are grieving and those who are recovering, um, they go and make direct amends. And this can be so powerful. I just want to share a personal story. And um, it's a hard story, but it has such a happy ending. When our son and daughter-in-law were in the throes of addiction, they knew they needed recovery. They were trying to save every, every penny and they had no money. They were homeless. They were emaciated. They were so sick. And they pawned their daughter's hoverboard that was in their shed. 
And they pawned a lot of things because that was the only way they could survive. And they went in and then they flew and they went to into recovery and they were, you know, in a different state. And my oldest granddaughter said, where is my hoverboard? I want to go to the shed. I want to get it out because it was spring and she wanted to use it. And my husband and I had found the receipt um, from from when they took it to the pawn shop. And we, we knew that it wasn't in the shed. And we had to tell our daughter, or our granddaughter, and um, we just all cried together. It was a very difficult moment because to a child, it was like, are you kidding me? My parents, that was mine. How dare they take my stuff and pawn my stuff for their advantage, right? Well, fast forward then, once they came back, once they were in recovery for a year or more, and they were reuniting with their children and trying to reestablish trust, that my granddaughter was older and she wanted a longboard because all her friends had longboards and they would take them to the park and they would meet. And um, they went out and bought her a longboard and said, we can't make this right or wrong from what we did in the past. But we want you to acknowledge that going forward, this is what it's going to be. And will you, will you forgive us? And it was a very, I mean, when I heard, I wasn't present, but when I heard about it, I just, I just sat down and cried. And I'm sure you can hear the emotion in my voice still. So as your chief hope builder, I am here to bring you hope and say they can recover, right? Um, but having the right expectations and knowing that moms, you didn't do anything wrong. You, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but you have to release yourself from that guilt and know that if your addicted loved one is trashing you and, and is just so volatile toward you, it's not personal. They are possessed <laughs> by the enemy. And that enemy is laughing every time you take it personally. So um, don't, don't. Heal, recover, study, educate yourself, and learn about the stigma. Treat this as a disease because it is, and help yourself find recovery. And if you want more support, Oh my goodness, join join us, join us in our tribe. We have um, we have moms in the personal tribe. We meet twice a week, and moms are healing there. We um, we just grow together, we share together. Yes, there is a fee to join. But you're worth that fee. And people who pay, pay attention. And when you, well, I have so many expenses that I have to cover my costs. But once you see the power of a community and how we heal together, it's just, um, it's just so worth it. 
I want to share just um, before I go today, if you'll bear with me just one more minute. I, yesterday, so some of, all of the moms in our group, in our tribe, we connect on WhatsApp. And uh, WhatsApp is an app that we can talk to, like a walkie-talkie system, so that if something is really bad that day, we hop in there and everybody can hear our plea for, for prayer. Or if something positive happens, we share that win so that we can all celebrate and rejoice. And there's been amazing stories of transformation, both for the moms in the group and our addicted loved ones. But one of the moms in the group sent me this and she said, I had to take a minute to praise you. Here is what I saw the past few days in WhatsApp. A mom who has been in the worst roller coaster of her life asking for support and in WhatsApp within 15 minutes of receiving support, encouragement, and prayer. And because she's a member of the Almighty Mom tribe, she has learned to stay in her lane and proclaim that she would do that. Yet she's confident enough that God is in charge. He, he allowed her to turn her car around that day because her son at the last minute said, Mom, I'm in between sober living. Can I come home and take a shower? And she was able to turn her car around and not go to work that day to go home and love on her son and be with him. She has learned how to listen without judgment, how, without trying to fix him. She has learned the importance of connecting with him and how to do that. This mom wrote and said, I see a mom now who cares as much for another mom as she does herself and genuinely feels the joy and sorrow for her friends. So she was just applauding me. We are changing in positive ways because of me stepping into this leadership role. And I'm not here to, I, it sounds like I'm tooting my horn, but, and maybe I am a little, but let me tell you, it's it, to, to obey a calling from God, to do something to serve others. I've had self-doubts all along my journey in doing this, right? And this was an affirmation. This was an affirmation that I'm doing the right thing. And it keeps me going. And so I want to just affirm you in what you're doing, whatever, no matter if it feels small or large or overwhelming, you can do it. You can do this. You can recover. And I want to be your cheerleader and hope that I am. So God bless. I hope this has helped you today. And I look forward to connecting with you again on our next podcast. God bless.